Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Good evening, everybody. Good morning to those of you watching at home. You can see that we have begun Christmas decorations at our church. Uh, our center tree is not up yet because this Sunday, as you're watching from home, we're going to be baptizing. And so uh, the center tree would keep you from being able to see that happen. So we're in uh, Christmas decorations here at our church. We're finishing up our series, Life, Death, Hell, and Heaven. A number of years ago at a previous church, uh, I had a gentleman at the church bring me a DVD. It's a DVD of a particular preacher telling a story. Uh, and he asked me to watch the DVD and tell me what I thought, tell him what I thought about it. This particular preacher uh, had said that he had this vision of heaven, and that he went to heaven in a vision and he saw things that were amazing and that were grand and he saw things that were fascinating and heard Jesus tell him some specific things. And he, this gentleman at the church asked me to watch this sermon and kind of give my insights on it. I'll be honest with you. I watched it and I listened to some of what he said. And I was a little bit skeptical of him having a vision of heaven. It just struck me as a little odd. And the particular person, preacher, that claimed to have this type of vision is one of those prosperity gospel preachers. And not just a few years ago, he asked all those that were following his ministry to help him raise enough money for a $54 million private personal jet that he would use for his ministry. So some of you watching today or listening or participating in worship, you know, you hear somebody make a claim like that and you wonder, you know, what, what do we do with that? Do we learn about heaven from someone's personal stories or someone's claimed visions? Others of you have read the book, Heaven is for Real, or you've maybe watched that particular movie. And there are some things in that book and in that movie that strike a chord of reality. But what are we to do with that? If the first story, someone's claimed vision of going to heaven, might be met by us with a little bit of skepticism, other stories like Heaven is for Real or other testimonies about someone going to heaven, we might meet that with a little bit of agnosticism, meaning... I just don't know. I've been asked about that before. I don't know whether that's real, whether that void really went to heaven or not. It could be. I just don't know. Here's the danger for us and what we want to make sure we do. We cannot draw direct conclusions about what heaven is or what heaven might be from someone's experiences. We need to draw our understanding about heaven from what the Scripture tells us. We need to look at what Scripture says. I am very confident that when I say this is what God says about heaven, that I'm going to be okay and that we're going to be in line. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of wish Scripture told us a little bit more than it does tell us about heaven. There are some specific things we can gather from the Bible about heaven, and I'm going to talk about some of those. I won't talk about all of the things heaven, the Bible says about heaven, but I'll talk about a few But I wish that God had maybe made things a little more clear. We know a little more of what we're going to experience there than he does. All I do know is that heaven is a whole lot better than the place we talked about last week. It's better than hell. It is something we can hope for after death. And it is the ultimate fulfillment of the life that we long to have in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So let me give you three things that the Bible says that heaven is 
that I am very clear that the Bible talks about. The first one is this, heaven is reward. It's reward. It's undeserved reward, but it's reward. In uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul puts it this way. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, what Paul says is, the stuff we're going through now is difficult. It's challenging. It's, it's suffering. But it's not even worth comparing to the glory that we will experience one day. Um, in Revelation chapter 21, uh, it, Paul, or not Paul, John puts it this way in that glorious vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eye. And, and he, death shall be no more, and there shall be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. That beautiful affirmation of what the new Jerusalem looks like coming down, the new heaven looks like coming down, and that promise that our tears will be wiped away, heaven is a reward. That is something we long for. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 9, But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, this is what God has prepared for those who love Him. Heaven is a reward. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, for starters, heaven itself is a reward. Meaning that not spending eternity separated from God, having the privilege to spend an eternity with God in His presence, is a glorious Reward, But beyond that, what God says to those of us that follow him is the life we live as a follower of Jesus. We're storing up rewards and crowns and blessings that God will bestow upon us at the judgment seat of Christ. The glory of that is not that we get to put them in a mantle, on a mantle in a room that we live in, or not that we get to put them in a display case like we might do with trinkets and rewards and, and plaques that we might get in this life. No, what we get to do with those crowns and those rewards is lay them down at the feet of Jesus in praise and in adoration and in worship of God. Heaven is a reward. It is a tremendous privilege that you and I get to experience in an, in an eternal relationship with God. It's a reward, by the way, that God is preparing for us. Some of you know all about preparing. Some of you are watching from home and you, you've already breathed that sigh of relief because family have come and gone. You know, you, you got ready for all those hordes of folks to come to your house and, and you prepared for them to come. You cleaned before they got there. You, you've cleaned since they left. You, you bought all the food. You made all the preparations. You planned ahead. And, and here's what God is doing. I want you to get this. God not only loves us so much that he would send Jesus to be our Savior. That, that's worth it enough, right? That our sins would be forgiven. That we would have an opportunity at forgiveness at life, life that lasts forever. But God not only offers us forgiveness and salvation and cleansing from our unrighteousness, He says He's preparing a place for us. He's preparing things for us. God is at work, even now, preparing for us the place that we will spend eternity for Him. It's a reward that God is 
preparing for us. It's a beautiful statement. It's a beautiful affirmation of what God promises to give us. Now let me make, I'll do this a time or two in this sermon. Let me make a correction or two to sometimes what we think about heaven. Sometimes we think, uh, and this is based on a poor translation, that we're going to get a mansion in heaven. Or we're going to get a house. And I've heard some people say, hey, I, I don't need a mansion. I just need a cottage somewhere on one of the streets, the side streets in heaven. And you use terminology like that. No, the, the text actually says, Jesus makes this claim in John chapter 14, 2. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. It's, it's not so much that all of us are going to get an individual mansion in heaven, a, a specific place. And the picture is that God's house is big enough for all of us to join him in, in, in home. Now, when I was growing up, there was a song that came out by Audio Adrenaline entitled Big Big House. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. I won't do you the disservice of singing that. But it, the, the line goes, God, our Father, has a big, big house, and there's plenty of room for all of us. And the imagery that Jesus uses there is he says that I've gone to prepare a place for you in that, in that house, in God's house. But the picture that draws us and that should draw us in is that the reward that we have, the home that we're looking forward to, the place that God is preparing for us is big enough for all of us. And it's a place for which we can belong. You know, some of us have been through times in our lives where we don't really feel like we're in the right place. We feel out of sorts. Maybe it's a family tension. Maybe it's a separation. Maybe it's a circumstance that divides us. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's whatever it is. We don't feel like it's real and like it's home. I'm going to tell you something. The language and the imagery that God uses to describe heaven, it's a reward because it's a reward we get to go home. To a place where we will belong forever and forever. Folks, heaven is reward. Secondly, heaven is rest. Rest. Some of you are like, hallelujah. My life is spinning out of kilter. There's stuff going on every day of the week, and I just, I, I don't know how I'm going to get it all done. And you know what the Bible says about heaven? In the book of Hebrews, it says heaven is a place of rest. Now, before we get that, you know, we think we're going to be sitting next to a pool, laying down, napping, and having some angelic angel servant bring us water and coffee or whatever our hearts desire. That's not the image of rest that the, the writer of the book of Hebrews describes heaven as. Read with me, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. It, it, the, the picture here is if Joshua had given them rest, talking about going to the land of Canaan, God would have spoken of an, not spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested with him from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of obedience. The, the picture there is talking about a future rest, and the, the analogy that the writer of Hebrews uses there is he's talking about the people of Israel who were leaving the land of, of, of wandering and they were moving into the land of Canaan. 
And the, the picture was that the land of Canaan was supposed to be an image of rest, yet it wasn't a completely fulfilled image of rest. But that we have an opportunity to look at heaven as a place of rest. Again, don't get caught up in the idea that when we get to heaven, there won't be anything to do. That's not true. There will be plenty to do. Even in the, th- in the idea of the people of Israel, if the promised land was a land of rest, I mean, think about that. Does that really fit? Because the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. When they came into the land of Canaan, what did they have to do? They had to fix up houses that they took over. They had to plant crops. They had to uh, reap the benefits of the crops. They had to set up temple worship. I mean, all of these different things that they had to do when they got into the promised land were things that were active and that were physical and that required effort, work, if you will. But if you go back and use the same analogy to think about God in the days of creation, God created for six days, brought everything into into being that was, and then he did what rested on the seventh day. That doesn't mean God stopped his work. What that means is God's work changed and shifted. He had put everything in order exactly as it was supposed to be. Now he's sustaining and managing the the work of the world as it is. So here's what heaven is for us. It's not just a place where we go and do nothing. It's a place where we go and what we do is eternally and gloriously meaningful forever and forever and forever. Folks, we're going to do things like worship. We are. Read Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Pictures and images of the people of God in heaven around the throne. Seeing God in His glory and His grandeur. Singing and praising and saying and stating and wondering. And and imagining the greatness and the glory of God in all of its wonder. In all of His wonder and in all of His glory. You say, man, that... I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I'm going to like that. Well, get the images of worship from a Baptist church or a Methodist church out of your mind. Because the, the type of worship that we'll be experiencing in heaven is in the immediate presence of a holy God who is, who is worthy of every bit of dancing and praise and song and glory and majesty that we can possibly imagine. We'll get to worship and that will be in effect... A time of rest because it won't be about us being right with God anymore. We'll have been made right with God. See, the picture of rest is this. When we get to heaven, the work of God justifying us from our sins is done. The work of God sanctifying us, making us holy before God, that's completed as well. The work of God bringing us into a glorious relationship with himself that's what we'll experience in heaven. The reason even our worship and our service, and I think we're going to serve as well when we get to heaven, the reason those things are not active work in the sense of we're accomplishing something in and of ourselves or for ourselves is because the work that God has done in us and through us will have been completed. We get to work out of the completion and perfection of who God is and what God has made us to be in heaven. Worship is, or heaven is, rest. It's reward, it's rest. Thirdly, heaven is relationship. It's a relationship in a way that is absolutely astounding. John puts it this way in his letter to the church in 1 John. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 
See, when we step into the very presence of God, we're going to be made different. You remember that scene way back in the Old Testament when Moses wanted to see the glory of God and God said, you can't see my glory because if you see my glory, you'll die? And, and God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and he let him see the back portion of his glory and even the back portion of his glory caused Moses' face to shine so brightly that the people of Israel could not look on without a veil being put over his face. See, when we get to heaven, we're going to be changed and made right. We're going to be sanctified and made holy. We're going to be like Jesus, not in the sense that we'll be deity, not in the sense that we'll be little gods. That's not at all what John's talking about. He's saying we'll be like him, we'll be made glorified in the glorified relationship that God expects of us and brings us into so that we can see God in all of his full grandeur and glory and exist in his presence. It's about a relationship with God. I think that's why when I stand over, uh, over the loved ones and over church members at funerals, I can say with absolute honesty, that loved one who's in the presence of God is in the presence of God in a different way than we could even dream or imagine. Paul described it as to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, what that means for us as followers of Jesus is, yes, we're in a glorious relationship. In the interim, and when I say the interim, you know, we sometimes imagine our loved ones walking streets of gold and and walking up and, and bumping elbows with Moses and with Peter and with some of the other saints that have gone on before. Let me just kind of burst your bubble just again for a second. That's not going on currently. Here's why. Because in the interim, when your loved one dies... Their soul goes to be with the Lord. Their body has remained in the grave. There's coming a time, Revelation 21, when God's going to resurrect the bodies of all of those saints that have gone on to be with Him in spiritual presence before. And He's going to reunite body and soul and heaven forever will be an embodied heavenly existence. Body and soul will live forever. And that's when we'll see the new Jerusalem with the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and all that kind of stuff. Technically, that's the new Jerusalem, by the way. Heaven isn't pearly gates and streets of gold. That's the new Jerusalem. But in one way, it is heaven because it's where God is. Heaven is where God is. And so it is absolutely accurate to say of our loved ones, they're in heaven. Because they are where God is, but they're in a disembodied state in their soul until God reunites body and soul together at that wonderful, glorious resurrection moment. Donald Blesch in his commentary or his theology book on the subject puts it this way. He says, heaven will be a spiritual family, a brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. This doesn't mean that the ties of natural kin- kinship are abrogated in the kingdom of heaven, but it does mean that such ties are superseded and transcendent. Mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, parents, and children now see themselves primarily and essentially as brothers and sisters in Christ. Their love for one another is not diminished, but on the contrary, it is heightened and raised to a new level. Their past relationships are not forgotten, but they now have fellowship as members of a spiritual family. Jesus is, of course, our prime example. He loved his parents and his kinsmen dearly, but was adamant that obedience to God comes first. You remember when his mother and brothers asked to speak to him, and Jesus responded, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my brother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Heaven is a relationship. A relationship not only with the God of the universe in a perfected state, but it's a relationship with others. We will be in a forever relationship with our loved ones that have gone before, that are in a place called heaven, that are with God with mom and with dad and with grandmother and with grandfather and with wife and with husband and with brother and sister, son or daughter, will be in that relationship forever and ever. And not just those that we know in this life, but those that we've not yet met that we do long to walk up to Moses and say, what was it like when? In fact, we may not even ask questions like that because we'll be in the place of what it was like in a way that is much more amazing than even what we can read about in the pages of Scripture. Folks, heaven is rest. Heaven is reward. Heaven is relationship. Heaven is glorious. Heaven is a place that I want to go to. I'm not getting up a bus to go there today. But I'm looking forward to that day when I get to see Jesus for who He is and all of His glory. You know what? As I've talked to people over the years... Uh, of my ministry, more than 20 years now in ministry, uh, I've asked that question often that that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Do you know for sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And there's few, there are a few things I've discovered about that question, asking that over the years. Um, that question is really meaningful to people that are a little closer to that stage where they think they might die than it, maybe it is to people that are a little bit younger. The older folks get, they think a little bit more about what might be after death. And they wonder about that. And they, they dwell on whether or not they're ready to meet God in heaven. Some younger folks may not think about that as much. And yet still, it's a meaningful question, a diagnostic question to discover what they're relying on to get to heaven. And in the course of my 20 years of ministry, asking that question to people of all different backgrounds and circumstances and situations in life, there are a lot of people that have said to me, I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven. But then when I asked them, if you were to die and stand before God, they would ask, God would ask you, why should I let you into heaven? I've gotten all sort of reasons for why God should let them into heaven. In fact, if you interact with people in the world, people around you, neighbors, coworkers, family members, friends, you're going to hear this a whole lot. I think God might let me into heaven because I'm a nice person. There's a sentimentality to the vision of heaven. In the last week as I was studying for this sermon, I was reading some, some jokes that, that, that talk about heaven, and I was reading some stories of heaven from the perspective of children. And, and one group of children said that heaven is a place where grandmamas and granddaddies go and we all get to be there with them one day when they die. And we sentimentalize heaven. It's in movies and it's in stories and it's in books and it's in songs. And there are a lot of people that would think that heaven is a place where nice people go. Or heaven is a place where kind people go. Or heaven is a place where the person who does a little bit more good in life goes as long as the good outweighs the bad in life. We sentimentalize it. The problem with sentimentalizing heaven is that that's not at all what the Bible says about who gets to go to heaven. 
me tell you something, folks. Those of you that are in the room, those of you, of you that are watching at home, there's only one way to go to heaven. And I don't get to decide what that way is. I, I don't get to say to God, God, uh, you know, here, here's the deal. I've been nicer than so-and-so. I voted for this person in an election. I, I did this with my life. I did this with my money. I, I did this with my time and my effort. I was a member of this congregation. I had this experience. Now, we don't get to go to God with our own statement of, here's how, God, you should let me into your heaven. We only get to go by the means that God has provided that we get to go. There's only one way, and that way is through Jesus and Jesus alone. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus put it this way. He said, strive to enter at the narrow gate, because wide is the way and the path to destruction. Narrow is the way to life. There's only one way to get to heaven, and it is through Jesus Christ. If you're here today, or if you're watching at home, and you think, I'm probably going to go to heaven because I've, I've been nice, or I've been a good person, or I've done good deeds, or... I was a member of church. Let me pause and, and stop you for just a second and go all the way back to the Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to the crowds that had gathered there to listen to this sermon. And he's talking in specific fashion to the religious leaders of his day. And let me tell you something. Those religious leaders, those Pharisees, would have thought that if anybody was going to heaven, it was going to be them. Because they went to synagogue every week. And they didn't just go to synagogue. They went to synagogue in the right way every week. They had the right apparel on. They had the right attitude in their own minds. They said the right things. They memorized the right things. They were able to quote scripture. And folks, when they prayed, listen, they prayed the greatest, grandest of prayers that you can imagine. They prayed those prayers on the street corners. They prayed those prayers for other people to see. They thought if anybody's going to heaven... They're the ones that are going to heaven. And what Jesus did in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is he talked about the kingdom of heaven more than 20 times. In those three chapters of Scripture, Jesus talked about heaven. He talked about who got to go there, and he talked about what heaven was about. He talked about the citizens of heaven. In other words, the people that actually get to make heaven their home one day, he talked about that. The passage of Scripture I quoted last week, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, show under the kingdom of heaven. That's in the same sermon that Jesus is talking about how to get to heaven. So how do you get to heaven? He gives us a clue in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus said right at the outset of that sermon, here are those that get to go to the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are those that get to go to the kingdom of heaven? The poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? The poor are the... The the word he used for poor is for the most poor of the most poor that you could possibly imagine. It's for the people that... It's not that they just don't have enough to have Christmas. Or it's not that they just don't have enough to have a Thanksgiving meal. It's that they don't have anything... They don't have a house that they can call a home. They don't have financial security in any capacity. They don't have enough food to eat. Unless someone meets their need physically, they're going to die because they're that poor. That's who Jesus was talking about. That's the word that was used for poor. But Jesus qualified it. He didn't say, blessed are the poor, physically, financially poor. He said, blessed are the spiritually 
poor, the poor in spirit. What he's saying is that the ones that get to go to heaven are the ones who realize that they're not worthy of going to heaven. The ones that get to have forgiveness are the ones that realize they need it the absolute most. We could put it in modern day language, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, because they realize they don't have anything to their name. Here's what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus is saying that if we want to make heaven our home, if we want to go there one day when we die, if we want to make sure that we don't spend an eternity separated from God in hell, then the pathway to heaven is to realize that we're not worthy. None of us in this room deserve heaven. None of us deserve the reward that's offered. None of us deserve the rest that's provided. None of us deserve the relationship that Jesus invites us to. And the starting point for receiving any of those blessings is to realize that we don't deserve it because we're sinners. If you see, track out what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say don't lust. You've heard that it was said, don't murder, but I say don't be angry. Maybe we're not dealing with adulterers and murderers in the room, but I'm certain that we've all sinned by way of hating our brother. We've all sinned by way of not praying rightly. We've all sinned by way of hoarding what we have and, and desiring things that are wrong. And Jesus talks about all of those things in the Sermon on the Mount. And it brings us all the way back to Matthew chapter 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for those are the ones that get to go to heaven. Let me make it very clear with an illustration as we close today. Some of you in this room don't want to go to hell. Some of you watching at home don't want to spend an eternity separated from God. And He is inviting you to put your faith and trust in Him alone by admitting that you're unworthy. Put it in this image, if you will. Imagine that you're on a boat in the ocean. You've gone out for a fishing trip. A storm came up. It capsized your boat. And the only thing that you can hold on to is a piece of driftwood or a piece of wood that's broken off of your boat. And you're in the middle of the ocean, off the coast, hanging on to a piece of driftwood. And you're hanging on. You're doing okay with that driftwood. That driftwood is exactly like your own sense of righteousness. That driftwood is your good deeds. That driftwood is your niceness to other people. That driftwood might be your self, sense of self-righteousness, who you voted for, how you treat people, how you act, whatever it is, you're holding on to that. And, and it's okay to keep you afloat in the ocean for a little while. But that driftwood is not going to get you back to shore. That driftwood is not going to make you, uh, it's not going to rescue you. It's not going to give you life. It's not going to protect you. So the Coast Guard comes along, they heard your distress call, they come along and they take a life preserver attached to a rope and they throw that out to you in the water. Any sane person is going to let go of that piece of wood, grab a hold of that life preserver and be pulled to safety and be rescued and rescued permanently. But here's what people do all the time when they hear the invitation to trust Jesus alone. They say... I think I'll hold on to my driftwood a little bit longer. I think I'll hold on to my kindness. I think I'll hold on to my self-worth. I think I'll hold on to my goodness. I think I'll hold on to what I can feel and touch and see instead of trusting in Jesus alone. Let me say this with abundant clarity. The only way that we get to go to heaven is if we will rely on Jesus alone. He is our worth. 
you're spiritually impoverished. I'm spiritually impoverished. The only way that we get to experience the reward and the rest and the relationship of heaven is if we set aside our own deeds. Set aside what goodness we think we have. Set aside what evil we know we have. And trust in Jesus alone. If you're here in the room today and you'd like to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, I'd like to let you know with the invitation, you come forward. Don't even wait. Come and ask me how you can be a follower of Jesus. If you're watching at home and you haven't yet put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, I would invite you to trust in Jesus. You can pray something like this, Father, I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I can't change my own heart. I admit that I'm unrighteous and that I'm holding on to all of my my not good deeds and they're not good enough. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose from the dead, that I could have eternal life, and I commit to following you as my Lord and Savior. Will you forgive me and will you save me? Will you take me in my spiritually impoverished condition and redeem me and take me to heaven when I die? If you believe that in your heart and pray that and trust in Jesus alone, you know what God's going to do? He's going to accept you just like he said in Matthew chapter 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for those are the ones that get to go to heaven. Folks, I want to tell you this. I want to go to heaven when I die. I am 100% confident I will because Jesus is the one that promised he would take me there because he's the one that saved me. If you're not sure today, you need to trust in Jesus alone. And folks, if you're concerned about neighbors and family and friends, you need to get them to Jesus because he's the only one that can take them to heaven when they die. Stand with me, if you will. Our Father, we come to you in this moment, and I want to thank you. I want to thank you that we have something to look forward to. This life can be difficult, challenging, disrupting, disconcerting. Lord God, one day, one day, those of us that know you get to look forward to the completion of our sanctification and rest in you in heaven. One day, we get to look forward to the reward that is the house with you and the glory with you. One day we get to look forward to a relationship with you in, in a glorified state. Lord, where we get to see you as you are. What a privilege. We're grateful for that. What a burden to carry as well. Because friends and family, neighbors, co-workers people that we know, people that we love, people that we're praying for. Some of them are holding on to their own goodness. Some of them are holding on to their own good works. Some of them are continuing in sin. And Lord, they're on a path, not to heaven, but to hell and separation from you forever. I pray, Lord, that not only will you make us confident in the salvation and the heaven you've assured us, but I pray, Heavenly Father, you would burden our hearts for the souls and for the hearts of those around us that need to know you as Lord and Savior. Have your way in our midst. If there are any in the room today that need to trust you alone, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, if there are any watching at home, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, for those of us that know that there are those around us that need the gospel, send us with the message of the good news that others may go to heaven and not be separated from you forever pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.